Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. Father, I want to thank you for the power of your Word. I want to thank you that it is a light to our feet and a lamp to our souls. I want to thank you that in it, everything for life and godliness is revealed. But I want to thank you that it's not your Word that saves us. It is the understanding of who Jesus is and what He's done in our lives that Your Word gives us. And so I pray this morning that as we submit to Your Word, that Your Holy Spirit would be able to open our ears and our hearts. I want to pray for Your anointing and Your empowering to be able to be faithful to what is taught in the name of Jesus. Scandal. Um, Scandal is what happens when we have someone that is in the public eye and they do something that is unexpected, illegal, salacious, secret, and and what happens is we have different kinds of scandals. You know, we have the the unexpected scandal of someone at Wimbledon not wearing all white. And everyone is so concerned about that, and what is that going to mean? And then, you know, as as the scandals ratchet up, we have the scandals of uh, leaders, Uh, that are at a certain restaurant in a time where everyone is supposed to be at home. Oh, scandal! What is going to happen in terms of that? We have the scandal of someone at an awards ceremony making a joke about someone else's wife, and that's someone standing up, walking up, and slapping them in the face. We have other scandals like this last week where Prince Harry's book comes out and exposes all sorts of interesting, I guess, things, you know? (laughs) We also have the scandals that wound us a lot more deeply where people in positions of leadership and authority betray our trust. And we ask the question, how did this happen? Why did this happen? What does it mean? The Bible describes the cross of Jesus Christ as a scandal. In Galatians 5 verse 1, Paul says, But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the scandalon of the cross has been removed. That Greek word which means offense. It also means something that baits us, something that traps us, and something that causes us to stumble. The cross is, I know, the cross, thank you, babe. The cross is indeed... An offense. I remember someone talking to me and says, it's, it, it's totally bizarre for me that you Christians wear around your necks an instrument of human torture. And that is true. And we wear that around our necks because it is a scandal. It is the sense of grotesque, outrageous shockingness. In fact, R.C. Sproul says that the most obscene symbol in human history, he's talking about the cross, is the cross. Yet in its ugliness, it remains the most eloquent testimony to human dignity. The implications of the cross are equally scandalous because the implications means that a Christian that is saved and shaped by the resurrected Jesus lives a crucified life. They also live this curious mixture of holiness and yet engagement in the world, this curious mixture of suffering and joy in a world that is actively preaching a false gospel of autonomy, pleasure, comfort, and individualism. 
And so we start our series in Galatians talking about the scandal of the cross. Galatians 1, Paul is speaking to the church, and I'm reading out of the ESV. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we have preached, let him be accursed. As we have said before, now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed. For am I seeking the approval of man or of God? If I'm trying to please man, sorry, or am I trying to please man? If I was still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. First thing I want to talk about here is tone. Um, and unfortunately, the English translation of the Greek does not do a, a, a good enough job of helping us understand the tone of this letter. This is what is known as Paul's angriest letters. Uh, there is no long salutation, no long prayer of thanksgiving, there is no long conclusion, please say hi to this person, please tell these guys I can't wait to see them, please thank so and so. It's an abrupt beginning and it's an abrupt end. The, the word astonished is actually only used by Paul once and it's, it's used in this specific area. Now, those of you that have been around church for a while will know that Paul wrote letters to a bunch of mixed up churches. And one of the churches that he wrote a letter to was the Corinthian church. And the letter in the Corinthian church, there are people that are engaged in orgies. There are people that are sinning. There are people that are um, using their status within the community to exclude others. He doesn't even use that word in the letter to the Corinthians. He doesn't use the, use the word astonished. I can't believe what you guys are doing. He uses that word to the Galatian church. I am astonished. I cannot believe this. This makes no sense to me. He is horrified by their danger, and he's also horrified by how quickly it has happened. And what's most concerning to him is that they do not understand their danger, is that they do not understand what they are walking towards. Now, there are some issues that we want to deal with delicately, now, that requires some delicacy to deal with. Uh, there's there's the aspect as now as a parent where instead of just telling a child what to do or telling a child what, what not to do, you, you engage the child, you help them understand, you, you engage with their feelings. You don't do that if they're crossing the street. You don't say, now tell me how you feel, or we don't do that. You run across the street, you grab them, you bring them to safety. And this is exactly what Paul is doing here. So what I want to talk about just briefly is the introduction to the letter I want to speak about the context of the letter. And why am I speaking about the context? Because context helps us understand 
uh, what is valid to us in our present circumstance. And what I want us to do is make sure that we don't use context as a way of excluding ourselves from difficult aspects of Scripture. That's not why we look at context. We look at context because as we read the Bible, uh, we have two key statements. Number one, the Bible cannot mean now what it never meant then. And then we also use the Bible to interpret the Bible. And so what we're doing is we, we're looking at the churches in Galatia. It's written to a number of churches. And, um, and so it's written to the churches in this area. Now, Paul started off in Jerusalem. And next week, we'll be talking about Paul's movements and why those were important. Next slide, please. Um, and we're talking about these churches specifically where Paul had planted churches, where, where Paul, on his missionary journey, had actually been there, set elders in place, and had visited them a number of times by the writing of the letter to the Galatians. Now, one of the things that we understand about the context in that time is that because this was outside of, um, of Israel and Jerusalem, what had happened is that the mainly Gentile governors had come to a bit of an understanding with the Jewish believers throughout the Roman Empire. And they'd come to this understanding of kind of live and let live. And the Jews, uh, as long as they didn't threaten the dominant Gentile culture, were allowed to do what the Jews were allowed to do. So in other words, they would have their Sabbath, they would go to their temple, and they were not required to participate in the rituals and festivals uh, that would honor the very various gods in the Gentile world. Basically, they had what was known as the Jewish exemption. And uh, the problem in those days was if something bad happened, we would look for a scapegoat if there was an earthquake or if there was a flood, and we would basically pick on someone and, Mitch, it's because you weren't there. It's because you didn't participate in this ritual that this bad thing is happening to us. And so most Gentile believers, I mean, most Gentile people in those days were, in a sense, through social pressure, forced to participate in these things. But the Jewish people were not. But now we have a problem. Now we have people who don't look like Jews, who don't talk like Jews, that are claiming this Jewish exemption. They're not going to the temples. They're not participating in these rituals. Their lives are quite different and so this did cause some secular pressure for the Gentile believers to look and act more like traditional Jews. However, this is not the core of what is concerning Paul. Paul is not concerned with whether these Jewish believers are participating or not participating in that. He is concerned with the deep core of what the gospel means. There is this other group that is definitely more concerned about this. And this is a group that is called the Judaizers. And what they did was they would follow Paul from church to church where Gentile believers would come to faith, and they would say, okay, let's, let's admit that maybe Jesus is the Messiah, maybe he did rise from the dead, there were some that believed that he did rise from the dead, there were some that believed there is no such thing, but we, we somehow believe he was important, but if you really want to be part of this covenant nation, then you have to be circumcised as a man, you have to obey dietary laws, eat this and do not eat that, and you have to participate in specific Sabbaths and festivals. And all of that focused on external things. None of that was about your heart. None of that was about the way that you engage with the people around you. None of that was the way in which this celebration of faith through Jesus Christ has actually changed you from the inside out. 
So the question we've got to ask is, is there another gospel? Verse 6 says, I am astonished, there's that word, that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you into the grace of Christ and are turning, the literal word there is a reversing of direction to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. So Paul is saying, people are saying there is another one. There is no other one. But there are some who trouble you, afflict you, distract you, confuse you, and want to distort or pervert the gospel of Christ. It's hard for me to emphasize how strong his language is in here. And his language will get much stronger as we get later on into the letter. What Paul is reminding the churches that he's planted through the grace of Christ, where they've received the free gift of mercy through Jesus, is that there is no alternative gospel. And if you were to believe that, it is a perversion or a reversal of what you have already said yes to. Now, this has happened throughout history. Now, in, in the time of Exodus, we spoke about this last week, um, Moses went up to the mountain. Now, God had taken his people out of Egypt into, um, crossed the Red Sea, and now he was giving them the law. And Moses would go up to the mountain, and it would thunder, and there'd be lightning, and people would be afraid. And so Moses had been spending a lot of time up there by getting, receiving the law of God. And this is what happens. Verse 1, now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered to Aaron and said to him, come make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. There, there are two critical errors there. One, who brought them out of Egypt? God brought them out of Egypt. Moses was used as a leader to bring them out of Egypt, but they have this confusion. Okay, we're not sure about this guy, Moses. He's taking too long. We're going to fix this problem. We are so grateful to be freed from slavery. We are so grateful to be out of Egypt, but we want a God that we can fashion in our own image. We're not saying that, th that God didn't bring us out of Egypt. We're just saying that we want to shape the God that brought us out of Egypt. And in verse 4, it says that he, this is Aaron, he received the gold from their hand and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and he made a molded calf and they said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. They're not denying that God brought them, sorry, that brought you out of the land of Egypt, yes. They're not denying that God brought them out. What they're wanting to do is fashion a God in their own image that they can control and that makes more sense to Him. The thunder and lightning, the fact that Moses is taking so long, no, we want to be able to do this. And that is what false gospels are like. They are not this crazy difference with regards to what the gospel is. They are subtle additions and subtractions to the message of God's grace. That's why it's so dangerous. And that's why Paul is pleading with the Galatians. Please understand that if you believe what they are saying to you, and if you submit to their rules and laws, this is not the gospel. This is not a, more, a fuller version of the gospel as they were claiming. This is not the gospel at all. Now, there is a difference between different gospels and gospel differences.
We had, um, over the last season, uh, we, we had two couples. And the one couple started believing the reality, or in, in their own minds, the reality that, that actually, um, that the claims of Jesus, that there is a death and then there is a judgment, uh, were not what they believed. And they began to believe that the gospel for them meant that everyone would get a second chance. And so whether you placed your faith in Jesus now or whether you didn't and you died, you would have an opportunity to place your faith in Jesus. It's called universalism, love wins, it's that whole idea. That is a different gospel. That is not the gospel at all. There's another couple, though, that, um, that were part of this community and part of what was difficult for them was trying to align the realities of what's, what, what justice and mercy meant and how we were pursuing that. And so there are many differences in terms of the pursuit of what the gospel means in everyday life. And so one of the things that, that they decided to do was to move on to a place where the pursuit of social justice was kind of the core of what that community was doing. That, that was not another gospel. That's not another gospel. That's a different expression of pursuing a key element of the gospel. But then there are times where those differentiations are so critical and so core to the nature of grace and mercy that they have to be called out. Because it's the thing that makes us uncomfortable that makes us more apt to believe a false gospel. And it's your makeup and personality that affects you in these kinds of areas. And the challenge within the Christian church is that we've taken primary issues, uh, secondary issues, and we've made them primary. And we are bold, and we are confrontative, and we are uncompromising about secondary issues. But we are very flexible and relaxed when it comes to the nature of Jesus, sin, judgment, and salvation. The very things we are called to hold a hard and firm line on. Or what's even worse is we co-opt an aspect of Jesus and we turn him into a caricature to prove our secondary position. Jesus was, came here for the poor. Yes, and. No, but we just make sure that people understand that Jesus came for the poor and we handpick those aspects of his life and his ministry that were focused on the poor. Or we don't care about the poor, so we use the one verse to use our, to co-opt Jesus into our thing, the poor you will always have with you. What we don't do is we look at a whole Bible theology and understand that it is both and. Where do false gospels come from? Verse 8, Paul tells us, but if we, now notice he doesn't say I. He also doesn't say they. He says we. But if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel contrary to the one we preached, let him be accursed. And I don't have time to go into how visceral a word accursed is. The first thing where the first place that, God, that false gospels come from is the we. It's relationships that are dear to us. Now, this, this is difficult because sometimes we are mentored directly by people and there are people in our lives that have taught us the faith. And sometimes we are indirectly mentored by people. Um, and so we, we have that example uh, where Laura was talking about a pastor. I don't know if she met him, but I think you probably just listened to him on the podcast. Um, where, where you've been mentored 
by that person. Sometimes it's someone that you know that's been foundational in your faith. And especially over the landscape of Christianity over these last couple of years, the idea of deconstructionism and deconversion has affected many of us because these are people that we know and love. And these are people that are now not just living but preaching a false gospel. And, and the markers of, of, of people that are into deconversion are, are these. What, what they do is they recount an offense, an abuse, or a hurt that they or people have experienced within the context of the system. They position themselves as the brave contrarian that stood up to this system. They say that the Orthodox Church, and by Orthodox I don't mean like Greek Orthodox, I mean the Orthodox Church in the sense that the church that believes what we've believed for 2,000 years is closed-minded, but they are open-minded, and that they have not thrown the Bible out, but they have a unique understanding of the Bible that we haven't got to yet. And they are winsome and kind, and they're very eloquent, except when it comes to people that believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to peace with God, that believes that the Bible is literally the Word of God given to us to point the way to God. Now, this is confusing. and In my life, I've had multiple conversations. Let me say this. The conversation that I had with one of my leaders, one of the people that discipled me, was when he said to me, I don't know that I necessarily believe in hell anymore. I don't know that I believe that God would actually damn people. Now, many of you have heard that. Many of you struggle with those kinds of things. And, and like I said, we'll be going through those things over the week. But the reason that it sat with me was this was a guy that discipled me. This was a guy that had taught me these things. And now this was a guy that was on his journey basically saying, I, I, I'm coming to a different place. And I'm coming to a more elevated understanding. Um, and... I'm kind of inviting you into that journey. I want you to complete your faith. It's different when I come up with younger leaders, and I remember speaking to this, uh, this other friend in the city and wondering if he would be a good person to come and preach at Mercy Commons and having a conversation with him and asking some questions but then him actually coming back and saying, I just, I, I want you to know, and I'm so grateful for this, I want you to know that I, I don't necessarily believe that Jesus is the only way to salvation. And I don't believe that the Bible is necessarily the authoritative word of God. And then I had to say, well, then I, I don't believe you can preach here because we don't believe the same thing. And, and it's, it's wounding, it's hard. Um, but it has to be done because Paul is, is talking to the Galatians and he's talking to us and he's saying, guys, this is not just a little deviation. This is not the gospel at all. The second place we get false gospels is from angels. And I would say these are supernatural experiences. And some of you have been in church traditions where God told me and I feel in God to do this. And that does happen. And we'll talk about this throughout the book of Acts. God does speak through dreams. God does speak through visions. God does speak through prophets. These days also, one of the angels that we have is our feelings. And I feel this. And because I feel this so deeply, I'm, 
more likely to engage in something that is not the gospel. The privilege that we have now uh, that actually was not afforded to the Galatian church was that we have the Bible as the foundation of our faith. We also have the rest of our Christian community and qualified leadership to actually be able to say, God showed me this. I had a prophecy about that. Help me understand and interpret that. What is the goal or what is the motive of false gospels? Well, Paul says in verse 10, the first thing is the pleasing of man. For I for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. The irony of this is both Paul and his opponents are accusing each other of the same thing. Paul is accusing those guys of pleasing man in a sense that, that the disciples or the proselytes that they were bringing into the Jewish faith were acting like good Jewish people that they were circumcised, that they were obeying the kosher laws, and that they were obeying the Sabbath and going to temple festivals and those kinds of things. And they are accusing Paul of saying, you are just lowering the bar. What do you mean if we just believe in Jesus that that is all we need? What do, we, what do you mean if we believe that Jesus Christ, as God, came and walked on this earth to live the life that we should have lived, died the death that we deserve to die, and is raised again and seated in the right hand of God, has obliterated my sin and filled me with the Holy Spirit. That is all I need? Paul says, that is all you need. Now look, let's be honest. On the face of it, Paul's gospel is actually a little easier. How many guys want to get circumcised? How many guys are putting up their hands and saying, yes, I want to do that? What Paul is saying is, guys, do you not understand this? You are voluntarily saying, yes, I want to do this. And he's saying, you don't have to do this. It is an external sign of what God has already done internally in you. You are part of the covenant people of God. You don't need to prove that by doing this. And by the way, how do you prove it anyway? Right? Has anyone thought about that? You know? However, when we read Paul, and when we read Jesus more specifically, where Jesus is saying, this is not an easy path. In fact, the path is narrow. But Jesus is saying, if anyone were to come after me, he needs to deny himself, pick up his cross. So yes, there is a sense in which what Paul seemingly is calling people into is this low bar, but actually it's so much more than that. Because later on, Paul talks about how we can actually know that we are those that can name ourselves little Christians or little Christs or Christ followers, and is by the fruit of the Spirit that is active in our life, all of which is internal, not external. But I think another reason that we are prone to false gospels is because we actually just want to live in, in a tension-free state. Most of us, uh, most members in Mercy Commons will know that one of the things that we talk about in, in Mercy Commons is that we, we live in various tensions. There are absolute truths, but then there are tensions that, that we are constantly needing to live in. And one of those tensions is the idea that God will bring judgment, but that God is loving and kind. And that brings tension to us. 
The, the sense that, that the claims of Jesus are exclusive, that you cannot have peace with God unless you have submitted to the Lordship of Jesus, but anyone can do that. And so we live in these tensions. And there are pure reasons why we end up with an impure gospel, because it's the way in which God has made us. Now, if you are a more open and inviting and loving person, you probably are going to struggle more with the idea that God, through Jesus, will come again and judge the living and the dead. That will be a more difficult thing for you. Now, if you're like me, and justice and righteousness is where you live, and you're like, and God will come back and judge the living and the dead. And the Spirit draws me to the tension of the fact that the reason that He does that is because His love and affection and kindness towards us, and He doesn't want to do that, but He will, because that is what makes Him ultimately loving and kind. Our personality, our past, our upbringing makes us feel these tensions more strongly. The cross is only about sin. It's about solving this existential puzzle. It's an emotional, legal transaction where sin has been paid for, and I'm now free. It isn't just that. The cross is just about love and compassion. It's just a powerful picture of how we are to love and sacrifice for each other. And we reject the idea of human sinfulness. We deny the exclusivity of Jesus, and we deny the fact that God has the right to judge sin. Or we live in this idea that we add human works that fortify and amplify God's grace. A grace that gains you access? Sure. It's because of Jesus that I'm in the family of God, but I need to work hard to stay here. And I need to work hard to prove that I belong here. This grace that gains you access, but a life spent re-earning that grace, or a life that is not orbed around a joyful set-apartness, a life that is no different to the world around us, a life that only bears the fruit of the flesh. Paul talks about all of these things as we get into Galatians. Obviously, I'm talking about false gospels. I hope you guys are hearing that. As we've said before multiple times, grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. It's not opposed to effort. Band, you can come up here. The Trinity is not something that is actually mentioned in the Bible as the word Trinity. But it's something that throughout Galatians you will see how Paul shows us how the God in three persons is and has been active in the life of the Galatian believer. He will show us how God the Father, the humanity, uh, the Father of all humanity, through Abraham, Isaac, and J Jacob promised, not that just Israel, but that every people from every nation would be able to be part of His covenant and called out people. Put simply, God promised Abraham that He was going to make us a holy people. We'll see Jesus the Son, the second part of the Godhead, who in His life, death, and resurrection fulfilled the law in its entirety and provided a new exodus, taking us out of the Egypt of sin, Satan, and death, and putting us into the promised land. 
that the fulfillment of God's purposes for Israel is Jesus, the Messiah. Therefore, Israel finds fulfillment in Jesus, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, not in the fulfillment of the law. Put simply then, Jesus' sacrifice enables us to be a holy people. And finally, we have the promise of the Holy Spirit. Paul teaches us that the Holy Spirit is the vehicle of transformative energy for the Christ follower that is conformed into the image of Jesus. Put simply, what that means then is the Holy Spirit is the one that empowers us for holiness. God the Father is the one that promised to make all of us a holy people, not just Israel. God the Son is the one that made that promise a reality when He died and rose again. And God the Holy Spirit empowers us to live in that reality. This is the true scandal of the cross, verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. God has done everything that is required for us to come into His family. Jesus was not primarily a good teacher. Jesus was not primarily a good model of humanity. Jesus was God. He didn't point the way. He is and was the way. Jesus in God became our rescuer, our redeemer, and our substitutionary sacrifice. John Stott says this, at the cross in holy love, God through Christ paid the full penalty of our disobedience himself. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I want to thank you for your powerful grace. I want to thank you even now, Spirit of God, you are calling your sons and daughters home. It is only through the call of the Spirit that enables us to respond to the grace and kindness of God. And I pray that even now, as you sense the work of the Spirit, if you have never submitted your life to Jesus Christ, to the good news, I pray that you would do so this morning. I pray that you would understand that it is a free gift of grace. I pray that you would understand that you have been set free from the enemies of sin, Satan, and death. And all that is required of you is to say, I believe that Jesus Christ came as God, as man, died the death that I deserved, but was risen on the third day, is seated at the right hand of God. If you believe that in your heart and confess that with your mouth, you will be saved, the Word tells us. For those of us that have been walking in faith, I want to pray that you would stand firm in your faith. And I want to pray in those times where the we's in our lives are causing us to believe another gospel, I want to pray that you would be able to stand firm in the grace of God. And I want to pray in those moments of, of tension and terror and shame 
where the difficulty of understanding the aspects of God is hard to grasp, I want to pray that you'd be able to pray Peter's prayer. Jesus, where else can we go? Who else has the words of eternal life? And I pray that now as we sing the song, there would be a fresh grace that rests upon us as people. We are the people of God because of the grace of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to ask you to um, maybe keep your, uh, your heads bowed, your eyes closed, just for a second. We're, we ran a little bit long. We are going to do communion, and then we'll release ourselves to some coffee and donuts, but this is way more important. <laughs> um, I, I remember... Uh, at one point asking an older saint, an older uh, gentleman about um, just sharing Christ in the workplace with people. And I remember his response to me is that he really believed that many people had never really, really heard the gospel through a lot of the noise and what they believed. And that a lot of people believe that God is like that uh, exterminator character that's got a mallet behind his back, leaning over and looking at the little mouse and you're the mouse. And the reality is that that is not the character of God. As Nick talked about, there is a tension. There's a tension of God being loving and strong and having to eventually deal with all of what is wicked, all that what, what harms us, and casting it out in judgment for freedom for all of humanity, and he dealt with sin on the cross. That is why he did it. It is his love that moved him and still moves him towards us. He is not just waiting to whack you over the head when you break a rule. It is not the character of God. This is not the gospel of Christ. Jesus came here while we were yet sinners, and he comes to you and to me this morning. To those of us who know him, he comes to us. And to those that do not know him, maybe you're here today and you don't know him. Maybe what you thought about God was a rule book and that he is just waiting to hit you over the head when you get out of line. And I'm here to tell you that that is not true. If there is a stirring in your heart and in your mind that Maybe God is speaking to you. Maybe God is saying, listen, I love you. <laughs> All that you've done, it can be pushed to the side. Christ has paid for it. Let me show you. Let me show you the good news. Let me show you what life is actually about. If that's you, would you do a very brave thing and raise your hand and, so that I can see it? We would just like to pray with you and talk with you. Anyone? For the rest of us, and if it is and you didn't raise your hand, please come find me, talk to me. It's, it's part of a journey of responding to what you're sensing. If you're sensing something, your heart's beating, you're like, what the heck is going on? That's called the whole, that's the Holy Spirit. He's knocking. <clears throat> For the rest of us, if you're a Christ follower, we're going to do communion really, really, really quickly. We're going to get up 
move to the back. There's a table in the back, two, two, two on the side. The band's going to continue to play. I want you to get up, grab the elements, and come back to your seat. And I'm going to lead us in, in communion together. We, uh, we come to the, this time, this, this table, the bread and the cup. And uh, we do this because Jesus himself instituted this with his disciples uh, on the night that he was betrayed before he went to the cross and he paid the penalty of our sins. Um, and uh, while Nick was speaking, it just reminded me of like there's, there's tension there's tension even for Jesus at this point. Like he doesn't feel it. He's above it. But um, he he himself won't won't eat and drink of this himself until all is fulfilled. So there's this waiting uh, that he himself is praying for us and eagerly waiting uh, to to come and get us. Um, and there's a part of me I'm wondering if there's people that are here that maybe there's something that you're waiting for in your life. Uh, maybe there's a, a point of tension that you're holding on to. Like, like Nick was talking to the children of Israel when Moses was a long way, long time. He's like, he's taking too long. God, this is taking too long. And I got I to gotta fix this. I got to do something about this. And I wonder if there's people here that, that feel that way um, and, and you want to receive prayer. I want to invite you to receive prayer um, for, for that. I had, a, I had another word um, about, uh, about the idea of, of, of bitterness and feeling hurt by people and realizing that um, they needed to forgive the, the people that had hurt them. And so if you're dealing with unforgiveness this morning, if there's bitterness, I, I want to invite you to receive prayer for that. But I'm going to read what Jesus said in his own words, Matthew chapter 26. While they were eating, Jesus took a loaf of bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat this, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the, for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will never again drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Lord, we... Uh, we thank you that there will come a day that we get to lift our glass with you. We get to hear the clink of glasses in the kingdom of God, where pain and sin and sorrow will be no more, and there will be joy in what you have done for us. We thank you. We thank you for the gospel, the good news of who you are and what you've done. And we love you as best we know how back. Thank you for loving us perfectly and rightly. All the church said, amen. Amen. Mercy Commons, it has been good to be with you this morning. Sorry we ran a little little over, but that happens sometimes with family stuff, right? Uh, get your kids, yeah. Don't, remember, don't, don't forget to get your children. That, that's important. There's still, there's, um, there's coffee in the back, donuts. Love to hang out with you. We love you. Go be the church. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.